2: Hello all, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Hope you are having an amazing day. A quick note before we begin. My guest on today's show did her side of the interview from a room in the library she works in. So if you hear the occasional sound of uh, children, for instance, please keep that in mind. And I will add while I'm at it that there are few places more special, in the world than a public library. All right, let's continue on to the interview. I am very excited to have as my guest today, Leslie Rounds. She is a writer, a historian, and the executive director of the Dyer Library and the Saco Museum in Saco, Maine. And she is also the author of the book, I Have Struck Mrs. Cochran With a Stake," Sleepwalking, Insanity, and the Trial of Abraham Prescott thanks so much for coming on. Welcome.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
2: So your journey with the story began with a sampler, right? And in case there are some listeners out there who may not know what a sampler is, would you explain what it is and where this particular sampler led you?
1: Yes, I'd be happy to do that. So in the Sacco Museum collection, we probably have 15 or 20 samplers. But of those... The one made by Sally Cochran is absolutely the best. It's far more ornamental than others, and samplers were embroideries that were done by virtually every girl in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, and the whole point of a sampler was to demonstrate that that girl had mastered sewing skills. So typically samplers have a lot of different kinds of stitches on them, but For historians, I think the most important part of the samplers is that the girls stitched their names. They often stitched their birth dates and sometimes they even stitched the town they lived in and the name of the teacher who helped them make it. So at a time when historical records are very limited as far as what they provide us in information about girls, these samplers are absolutely the most wonderful genealogical resource. And in the case of Sally Cochran, I was trying to convince my museum director that we ought to have an exhibit of uh, samplers, and she was kind of skeptical, and I told her, well, let's look at Sally Cochran. She's obviously from Saco because we've had this in our collection a long time. Um, I bet I can find out some interesting things about her, And, and that's the kind of thing that people like when they come to a museum exhibit is to learn about the people. So I came back over to the library and did a little research and quickly found out that Sally was not from Saco. I couldn't find any record for her at all. And then I dug a little deeper on Google and I found out that she was from not too far away from here in southern New Hampshire. And just the most minimal research. And I discovered the sort of horrifying fact that she had been murdered as a young mother in 1833. Not that many years after she finished the sampler in 1818. And to say that piqued my interest hardly begins to describe it because as I did more research on Sally, it seemed like every time I dug a little deeper, I came up with more and more just bizarrely interesting connections and facts. And the story just became so overwhelmingly rich and engaging that I felt like somebody ought to write a book about it, but I was the only one who knew about it. So (laughs) it had to be me.
2: Yeah, so can you tell us more about Sally, how she grew up, and how she came to meet and marry Chauncey Cochran?
1: So Sally Cochran was born in Londonderry, New Hampshire. Her parents had actually originated in the Pembroke area of New Hampshire, but but they moved to Londonderry, and seemingly were doing well there because Sally stitched her sampler at a private female academy in 1818, and that A lot of girls, their parents didn't have the money to send them to a private academy. So Sally had that extra benefit, and clearly there was a little extra money there. But sometime around 1818, for reasons that I was never able to identify, the family packed up and moved to Pembroke. It may be that farmland became available by way of a death in the Cochrane family. At that time, Sally began to see a lot more of her first cousin, Chauncey. Um, Chauncey at just about that time lost his father and being the oldest surviving son in his family, he inherited a goodly chunk of his family farm. So he was only ooh, maybe a half a mile up the dirt lane from where Sally's parents lived. And I'm sure that they began to see a great deal of each other and obviously fell in love and then they married. And so Sally packed up what belongings she had and moved up the road and into Chauncey's farmhouse. And Chauncey also had living in his farmhouse at that point, his mother, because often she didn't, she didn't have any rights to the house, but generally speaking, you know, you kept, you kept your mom around. She didn't have any other place to go. And across the street from Chauncey, his younger brother, James built a farmhouse And so I think that they must have been somehow sharing the farmland because uh, Chauncey's father died without a will. So it was a little hazy what became of the land. So like many young women of her time, Sally had certain chores that she was responsible for on their farm. She took care of all of the milking of the cows, which could be quite a lengthy process twice a day. She probably made cheese and butter She had a garden plot where vegetables were grown, not for sale or anything, but to feed the family. She baked, she did laundry, which was like a days long process every week. She was a busy young woman, but she still had time to help Chauncey with some of the other farm chores as long as they weren't like terrifically strenuous. But then in um, 1829, I guess, their first child was born. And at about that time, it became harder for Sally to help Chauncey out. She really had enough stuff to do on her own. And so the Cochrans hired a farmhand. They hired Abraham Prescott, who was about 15 years old at that time. And Chauncey would have known Abraham from just kind of around town because Chauncey, I mean, Abraham was working for another farmer and Chauncey presumably thought that he was a good worker and looked like a fairly reliable young man, although... There were certainly some things about Abraham that were a little bit odd. There was hardly anybody who would talk about him later that didn't comment that Abraham would never make eye contact with people. And after Chauncey had hired Abraham, he certainly had issues with the fact that Abraham sometimes mercilessly beat the cattle, just would completely lose it. But on the other hand, Abraham was very kind to the now two children that the Cochranes had. And he always did his work without complaining. And Chauncey said that that Abraham had been known to go and dip water out of the well for Sally, even when she hadn't asked for it, which he seemed to think was a pretty good thing. So Abraham was living there in their household. Uh, He may have lived, possibly slept in the barn in the summertime, but he certainly slept in the house with them in the wintertime. And it was like one big happy family.
2: So speaking of the winter, the evening of... January 6th, 1833. This was a very bitterly cold winter night. And as you just said, Prescott, because of the cold, was living in the main house. But it was so cold that he could not
1: sleep. He, he seems to have had some trouble sleeping. And the primary means, the only means of heating the Cochrane farmhouse, like all other farms of their time, was a Big central chimney, and they had one giant fireplace in kind of like their sort of kitchen living area. And then they clearly had a fireplace in the bedroom that uh, Chauncey and Sally used. And I imagine that there was a bedroom, all, uh, a fireplace also in the one that Chauncey's mother slept in. But it seems from what we know about this night that Abraham put some bedding in front of the big fireplace. So around about maybe 11 o'clock at night, he woke up and it was really cold. So he got up and kind of oddly, he lit a candle and went into the Cochran's bedroom and he took a buffalo robe that they must have been sleeping under, because I can't imagine on this cold night that they would have just had it there out in the room. So he took that buffalo robe and he brought it back where he was sleeping and he, he built up the fire and got it going really well. And then he lay down underneath that buffalo robe. And then a little while later, he got up again and he walked back through the house all the way to the back of the house where they had sort of a smaller addition. And he went out there and he got himself an ax and he came back in and he went into the, the Cochran's bedroom And he suddenly began beating Sally and her husband with the axe, hitting them mostly in the face. He must not have used the blade of the axe to strike them, because surely then they would have been killed. He must have used either the side of the axe or the back of the axe, which would have been blunt and more like a rectangular hammer. But whatever the case, he just rained blow after blow down upon them. And then he very quietly walked back out of the room and he went to wake up Chauncey's mother. And when he got in there, he said to her, I believe that I may have killed Sally and Chauncey while walking in my sleep. So here's Latisse Cochran in the middle of the night with this probably deranged young man and the two little children somewhere in the house. And she knows that you know her son has possibly been murdered. So what does she do? She sends Abraham out to fetch help. And living across the street, there were three different farmhouses. And one of those farmhouses, as I mentioned earlier, belonged to James Cochran, Chauncey's younger brother. She did not send Abraham there for sort of obvious reasons. I don't think she wanted to lose her other son, too. She sent him to one of the other farmhouses, and they came over and immediately fetched the doctor. But it was hours before Sally and Chauncey regained consciousness. And during those hours, of course, many neighbors trooped in to see what was going on. But Abraham just sat in a chair before the fire and occasionally he like moaned and groaned and sobbed, but his only explanation was that he must have been sleepwalking. And the doctor that came was so impressed with that story that he he actually sent it to the local newspaper because, and he called it a remarkable case of somnambulism. He was so impressed that this thing could have happened while the young man was sleepwalking.
2: So it's an interesting decision the Cochranes then have to make. Here they've got somebody in their house um, who has just attacked them. Even if he says it wasn't on purpose, claims it was sleepwalking, uh, most people would not want that person in their house anymore.
1: That, that's my thought. And, and I did give this a lot of thought because it seems so surprising to me that the Cochranes elected to keep Abraham on and to continue on just as if nothing else, nothing had happened. And one of the neighbors actually stopped Sally one day in the spring and said, you know, asked her about the whole thing. And and Sally said, well, she knew that Abraham was a good boy, that he never would have done that to them if he hadn't been sleepwalking and that she fully trusted him. And the the other woman said, well, I would not keep a boy like that. And I think that's my response too. I would not keep a boy like that. But, But they elected to. And I can only presume that it's because he'd been living with them at that point for three years. And I think they believed they knew him. They had had so much contact with him and somehow it was a time when more educated people were really trying to embrace scientific ideas and the idea that somehow he could could be sleepwalking sounded very sort of scientific to them. And for whatever reason, they believed that Abraham had not intended to injure them. And that was a big mistake.
2: Right. Yeah, but even if it had really happened in his sleep, not done on purpose, I mean, he could do it again, right?
1: I have no idea. I can think of no no other thing. I mean, apparently Chauncey, once he was recovered, went to talk with Abraham's parents who were, I guess you could say they were salt of the earth. They were not sophisticated people. And they, if there had been railroad tracks at that time, they would have been from the other side of the railroad tracks from the Cochran family. They were somewhat notorious in the area for their kind of rough ways. And anyway... The Prescott parents denied that Abraham had ever sleepwalked before, so Chauncey just believed that, and they carried on. And they carried on through the spring, although Chauncey noticed that Abraham's issues with the cattle seemed to worsen. He seemed to beat them more mercilessly, and neighbors even commented to him that that he ought to be kind of paying attention to what was going on there. But there were no other major situations until mid-June that year. And it had been a very, very wet week. And it actually had been a very, very wet spring. So um, planting was sort of retarded. And at this point... Most farmers were depending on like fiddlehead ferns, which grew in the forest, to provide them with a little something green to eat, That something like veg- vegetable, at the end of the uh, long, long winter season. Winter goes on for a, quite a while up here. But it was strawberry season. And the strawberries at that time were wild berries that just grew underneath the grass in the fields. Just teen- They're very tiny, like half an inch big, maybe. And one Sunday morning, Chauncey Cochran was sitting in their kind of sitting room, which they called their clock room. And he was reading the record of a trial of a reverend from Bristol, Rhode Island, who was accused of murdering a young mill worker. And this had become something like the O.J. Simpson trial in New England. Everybody was talking about this trial. Everybody was reading about it it was so scandalous that this this Reverend had attacked this young woman and, and it turned out that she was about four months pregnant. So the Reverend Avery had just been acquitted anyway of his crime. So, so Chauncey Cochran had borrowed this very, very long newspaper account of the trial and was reading it. And Abraham wandered into the room and said that Sally wanted to go and pick strawberries. Did Chauncey want to come? And Chauncey absolutely did not want to come because he was so engrossed in what he was reading. So Sally probably changed out of her Sunday best dress and into something a little bit more comfortable, probably some kind of a cotton gown. So Sally had long hair and she had her hair fastened up on top of her head with a tortoise shell comb, which was what women used at that point. And a a tortoise shell comb is extremely breakable but she shoved it into her hair and then she tied on her calash, which was kind of a collapsible bonnet, but she didn't want the sun to fall on her face because it was not attractive to be tanned. And a calash was also something that you didn't go out without putting it on. And she tied the bow tied a nice firm bow under her chin because she knew that when she was bending over to pick the strawberries, the calash would fall off if she didn't have it tied on. And then she and Abraham went out the door and kind of down the hill from the house. And they had told, Abraham had told Chauncey that they would be picking strawberries in a field that belonged to the brother James, and that field would have been pretty close to all those houses that I mentioned earlier, and in good view of all of them. But ultimately, that is not where they picked strawberries. They wandered down, kind of heading west from the Cochrane Farm, away from all those houses, and then eventually down a very steep hill and into what they called the brook field, And that was a place where Abraham had recently been with Chauncey, and they had been building brush fences there. So get, even getting into that field wasn't exactly easy. It's doubtful that Sally would have climbed over the brush fence, so she would have kind of had to walk around it, which was a little bit of a hike. But they ended up in the in the field and they were picking the berries, and you would have to, like, push the grass apart and kind of hunt around to find those berries. They weren't easy to find. And at this point, probably an hour had lapsed since they had left the farm. And somewhere around that time, Latisse, Chauncey's mother, came into the clock room to tell him that she was hearing some very strange noises coming from out behind the house, and she thought that that Chauncey ought to go and check out what was going on. So Chauncey got up and went out through the back of the house. And the next thing after the back of the house was a very large barn. And by the time he got to the front entrance of the barn, he could hear those noises too. And they were very odd noises. So he he went quickly through the barn and out the back. And when he came out the back of the barn and back into the sunshine, he found Abraham sitting in the dirt on the ground, and making these terrible wailing noises. And he said to Chauncey, he didn't know but what that he had killed Sally while they were picking strawberries. And Chauncey, of course, you know, dragged him up and on, onto his feet and said, Show me where she is. And Abraham kind of stumbled down the hill, and he would keep stopping and turning around and and kind of relating his story as he went. And Of course, Chauncey was frantic to get to where Sally was because he could see blood all over Abraham's shirt. And Abraham kept saying things like, well, he'd suddenly developed a toothache and that had caused him to sit down on a tree stump. And once he sat down on the tree stump, he fell asleep. And when he woke up, he found that he had beaten Sally to death and and." you know, it was just a terrible story. And when they finally got down all the way down to the brook field, Abraham wouldn't go any further and Chauncey couldn't even find Sally. And eventually he saw her and she had been dragged underneath some brush. And when he got there, Sally was breathing, but not very regularly. And he screamed at Abraham to go fetch help and Abraham wouldn't. And finally, Abraham ran off, and and Chauncey just yelled and yelled until neighbors heard him. And by the time anybody got to the field, Sally had died.
2: We will be back in just a moment.
1: This episode is brought
0: to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory— Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: And we have returned. So uh, Chauncey Cochran is, is panicking at this point, of course. He doesn't want to leave his, his wife's side, but he needs help, needs a doctor. And just like the attack a few months earlier, the only person around to to send for that help is Abraham Prescott, the, the attacker, the culprit.
1: And Abraham won't do it. I mean, Abraham seems to have just kind of fallen apart at this point, not surprisingly. What Chauncey finds is that his wife has just been viciously beaten across the back of his her head. When, when he got to her, she was le- lying on her stomach and he must've rolled her over to try to tend to her. And um, obviously there was nothing he could do because basically Abraham had beaten in the back of her head. You know, she was going to die. She probably even now would not have been able to survive injuries like he inflicted upon her. As neighbors began to sort of um, straggle in, which they did all morning long, as they began to straggle in, they noticed in the deep grass of the brook field that there was an area that was trodden down that was about maybe six feet in diameter. And in that trodden down area, they saw Sally's hair comb with one tooth broken out, the calash lying on the ground, the bonnet. And the basket of strawberries spilled out on the ground. And then they could see the long trail through the grass, almost 30 feet that Abraham had dragged Sally to kind of conceal her body, seemingly. And as the neighbors came, people interpreted the scene in different ways. I mean, everybody knew that Abraham had killed her. It was, it was obvious, but I think the real question was, had Abraham raped her? And those were th- that was a question that people wouldn't even ask. They were thinking it, but they weren't saying it because that would somehow have reflected ill on Sally, the victim. Even though you know, it would be nothing she could have prevented. But that would that issue would kind of come up again later.
2: Right. So. Again, just a few months earlier, Prescott had attacked them in their sleep. He'd claimed he had been sleepwalking. People believed him, and now he's using the same excuse again. But this time, it's, it's far more suspect. I mean, you've invited someone out to pick strawberries, taken her to an isolated location, and you suddenly have a terrible toothache, so you decide to take a nap, and then immediately start sleepwalking. This this sounds more than a little fishy.
1: And the fact that, uh, to me, the the six feet diameter area of trodden grass, that's a lot of kind of moving around, even though it's in a very small area. Remember that I said how fragile the comb in her hair was. Well, he had struck her across the back of the head with a four foot long, what they call the stake at that time, but was really a fence post in today's language, he had struck her at least twice with that fence post and the doctors that examined her later would say that one blow was from the left and one blow was from the right. But those blows couldn't have happened with the hair comb in place because the teeth of the comb would have extended from basically the crown of her head down maybe three inches toward the nape of her neck. So if she'd been struck with the comb in place, it would have been shattered. And the same thing is true of her kalash. Her kalash had these pieces of reed that were sort of woven through it to give it kind of a nice stiffness. And the kalash wasn't damaged and it didn't even have any blood on it. So those things were off her when he hit her with the fence post. What happened next was that... um, They had a coroner's jury meet in the field and examine the situation, and basically that was just the neighbors. And the neighbors all agreed that, yes, there had been a murder, and yes, Abraham had done it. So Abraham was arrested, and he was detained overnight in a neighbor's house, and the next morning he was arraigned, and then he was taken to a jail in um, very far away, Hopkinton, New Hampshire, which is basically probably more than 30 miles away in a horse and cart, which would have been a long ride. And he was put in the jail of the Leach family who were the jailers there for about 50 years. And the jail was basically sort of in the back part of their home. So he was kept there in that jail until September when he would be put on trial. When it came, when September rolled around he was brought over to Concord, New Hampshire which was the county seat, it was also the state capital. And he was, he was incarcerated in the prison that was there for the length of the trial. And before the trial began, he was in a cell with another young man. And um, a bunch of the men from Pembroke came over to try to sort of confront him before the trial would begin. And when they confronted him, he said that, actually, well, they actually, they, they, they told him what to say. In essence, they said, did you? And then they described a situation and Abraham agreed to that. So they said, did you say something that was inappropriate to Mrs. Cochran? Did you, you know, try to solicit her favors? And he said, yes. And they said, so what happened next? Did did she refuse? Yes, she refused. And then what happened? Did Did you then attack her? Well, no, actually, he said he didn't attack her like that. He went and sat down on a tree stump. There's the tree stump again. And he thought about it for a while. And he thought to himself that Chauncey would probably have him arrested for saying these things to Sally and that then he'd have to go to prison and he didn't really want to go to prison. So then he decided, well, he would just kill Sally. So she couldn't tell Abraham what, uh, tell Chauncey what he had said to her. So at that point, he picked up a fence post, the stake, and snuck up behind her and beat her over the head. So that was sort of his next explanation for what happened. But it clearly seemed like they basically kind of gave him so many hints as to what he ought to say that it maybe didn't really represent the truth either. Although probably much closer to the truth.
2: So, yeah, so so the topic of sexual assault is, of course, a delicate one. And even more so in the 1830s, when it was considered inappropriate for for, for a male, for, for a doctor. I guess they were one and the same in that era to examine a woman for sexual assault and in the case of sally cochran there wasn't really any torn clothing uh anything that might outwardly say that this might have happened to her
1: yeah so when i first learned this it struck me as very very odd but in the earlier half of the 19th century women did not wear any kind of underdrawers, underwear, anything like that. Um, they just had on a lot of petticoats and a corset. I mean, they had a lot of clothes on, but no underwear. So, had he beaten her or something, he certainly could have then had sexual relations with her without, you know, particularly messing up her clothing. And when he then dragged her, all the way, you know, the 30 feet or so into the brush, it would have like pulled her dress back down and sort of rearranged things quite nicely. The women who would have prepared Sally for burial would have stripped her and bathed her and then dressed her in something else. And a couple of those women were older ladies that clearly sort of understood what some of the issues might be. And they commented that there didn't seem to be anything that was out of the ordinary they wouldn't specifically say anything but they they did i they they clearly did not think that she had been raped and he knowing what i know of abraham although that may have been his initial intent it wouldn't surprise me that having killed her he didn't you know follow through with that but people were looking for an explanation and everybody knew that he hadn't been sleepwalking So the the following day after he's brought over to Concord, the trial begins. And it's obviously, it's like the circus has come to town. A murder trial in New Hampshire at that time was just exceptionally rare. There was maybe one every four or five years in the entire state. And people were very interested. So they would pack a picnic lunch. And if they could leave their, their farming chores behind, they would come to see how much of it they would have time to see. Um, there, there was a jury. Pretty much every member that was selected for the jury was a farmer, a middle-aged farmer. They all had wives. They all had children. Um, some of them had children about the age of Abraham. Some of them had wives about the age of Sally. But they were all Chauncey's peers. They were not Abraham's peers at all. And because this was a capital trial, because if if he was found, if Abraham was found guilty of murder, the only sentence available in New Hampshire at that time was the death penalty. Because it was a capital trial, the jury was supposed to be sequestered. So they were, they were put in the inn that was in town to sleep at night, and they were supposed to have a person that sort of followed them around to make sure that they didn't sit and talk with people. Uh, a couple of very well-known attorneys were selected to represent Chauncey, I mean, to uh, represent Abraham, and I think that they did a, a very good job under the circumstances of trying to defend a person that basically had no defense. That Their sense was that he was probably insane. He obviously, to a lot of people, didn't really look quite normal. And this didn't seem like a normal situation at all. And if he wasn't insane, then they were going to defend him as having been sleepwalking. And if he wasn't Maybe were, maybe those were almost the same thing. So either way, that ought to work. And um, it didn't take long. The, the state presented their case over the course of a morning, the first morning. They had some witnesses that described the scene. Um, Chauncey testified. Oddly, they didn't have anyone else from the Cochran family testify that might have been able to talk a little bit more about what kind of a person Abraham was but there was really very little of that from that side of the uh, family. A lot of the neighbors came and testified as to what they saw. Some of them said they thought there was a struggle. Others thought that that couldn't be so because there wasn't enough trodden down grass. And then it was the defense's turn. And the defense presented an exceptionally long opening statement. It went on for hours and hours and that began in the afternoon and it was a nice warm afternoon. The trial was being held in a large church because it was the biggest space they had in Concord. I think it probably got quite warm in the church. Apparently some of the jurors had a flask of liquor that they were sharing around as they listened. Some of them may have dozed off from time to time, but um, they probably were not Mm, the best jury in the world. And the trial went on for about three days. And, and in the evenings, the, the jury would go back to the inn. Some of them, the, the fellow that was supposed to be keeping an eye on them would go home to bed. And after he went home to bed, they would go out and go to the barber shop. And some of them went to the bar and to the, the post office and visited friends and just generally really got around. And everywhere they went, people were talking about this case. And they were hearing all this these opinions that were not what they were supposed to be listening to. So the trial itself was fascinating for the cases that the defense brought forward, all these just amazing cases of sleepwalking that seemingly were so fantastical and yet people seemed to believe them. And some of them perhaps were real. I don't know. But others seemed very strange where a minister would would go and deliver his sermon to the church while sound asleep. And a girl would play the piano and sing so much better while asleep than she would while awake. And maybe the best case of all was of a young girl in Springfield, Massachusetts, whose last name was Ryder, who began to have episodes of sleepwalking in the house where she worked as kind of a housemaid. And she could do all these um, amazing kind of um, stunts, really, while she supposedly was sleepwalking. Where people would hold up cards, and she and they would put a blindfold on her, even though she was supposedly asleep, and she would be able to see what was on the card, and she would cook and sew and everything supposedly while asleep, and seemingly, you know, there was there was a nice scientific write-up of her various misadventures. And people came from all over to walk through the people's house and watch her do it while she was asleep. And it turned into a real sideshow. And so many of the the sleepwalking episodes that the attorneys described seemed like they were just ridiculous, basically. But people believed them, I think, because as I said earlier, it was a time when when science was coming to the forefront and these things seemed as if they were being scientifically investigated and scientifically reported. And it lent to them an air of realism that defied the common sense that people had previously depended upon. It, it became like fashionable to believe these strange stories in the face of what they never, before they would have rejected as being ridiculous. So there were also remarkable stories of people who had become suddenly insane and done some terrible thing and then been sane again right afterward. And the defense called various physicians that had treated mentally ill people in, mostly in New England, to testify And each of them had more strange stories to relate of patients they had treated and remarkable cures. And, but the end of it was at the end of the trial, the jury was out for just a few hours and they voted to convict him. So he was, he would have been sentenced to death. And in the normal course of events in New Hampshire at that time, probably everywhere in the United States at that time, he would have been executed by hanging within probably three or four weeks. But the defense also quickly learned about the impropriety of the jury. And the prosecution was perfectly willing to concede that that was true, that the jury had been terrible. And so it was appealed to the Superior Court. And in December, they decided that Abraham should have a second trial. The verdict was overturned. The next time the court would have met would have been January That would have been January of 1835. But a lot of the physicians that were going to testify again, the same ones, couldn't travel because it was the middle of the winter. So then it was put off to the next meeting of the court, and that would be the following September. So all this time, Abraham is being kept in the little jail in Hopkinton. And meanwhile, Chauncey Cochran has packed up his two kids, but not his mother, and moved to pretty far up northern Maine north of Bangor, Maine, to a new farm. I think he just couldn't stand to stay in that house, and I understand that. So September rolls around, finally, and the next trial is basically just a complete and total rerun of the first one. The same people testify. They testify to the same things. The jury deliberates briefly, at least this time apparently not drinking, and finds finds Abraham guilty a second time and he is sentenced to hang. But by this time, even the prosecution is having uneasy feelings about Abraham. His his parents had testified that, that he was not a normal child, that as a baby, his head had grown very rapidly, and that The doctor had come to treat him, but there really wasn't much he could do. And and, and the doctor, the local doctor, had thought that in later years, he would probably not be sane, not be well mentally. And a lot of people agreed that Abraham wasn't a normal boy, that he was often angry, but that he couldn't converse with people. He didn't make eye contact with people. He just came across as being very strange able to work, but not normal. And so the prosecution went so far as to write a letter that appeared in the newspaper shortly after Abraham was sentenced to death the second time saying that they thought that executing him would be a miscarriage of justice because he was so not normal. And they did not feel that he was responsible for what had happened. So that's a pretty unusual thing for the prosecution to do, it seems to me. And the defense appealed. And at that point in New Hampshire, the only appeal was to the governor. And the governor actually was opposed to capital punishment, which was a fairly unusual stance for the time. But Sally was a young mother. This case was very polarizing. A lot lot of people felt that Abraham deserved to die for what he had done to her. And a lot of people felt the contrary. So the, the governor, Abraham was supposed to be executed basically uh, about a week before Christmas. And the governor at that point decided he didn't want to decide what should happen. He had the power to keep him from being executed, maybe to have him incarcerated for the rest of his life, but to not to to spare his life. And, um, uh, he, he was going to run again, and he knew that this could be kind of a sketchy decision to make. So he appealed to his, his council, a group of men that aided him in some decisions, and asked them to decide what they thought should happen to Abraham. Meanwhile, the word is out that Abraham is going to be executed. And it's this cold, cold day in December in Hopkinton, New Hampshire, and basically 10,000 people show up for his execution having not seen the little item that appeared in the newspaper the day before saying it had been postponed temporarily. And when they get to Hopkinton, which even now is just this little village, and they find out they're not going to get to see the big show that they're all excited about seeing because an execution is such an exciting event, they riot. And the only thing they can think to do is they they think that, well, they'll go to the jail and they'll haul Abraham out and they'll execute him themselves. And when they get to the jail, not surprisingly, the jailer won't let them in. And so they kind of go back to town and they think about it some more and they come back to the jail a second time. And they basically try to break in the back and the jailer fends them off. And finally, Mrs. Leach, the jailer's wife comes out on the front step and she must have to really scream for them to hear her. But she says her daughter, Clarissa, is extremely ill in the house. Clarissa has just had a baby and she's not doing well. And would they please just disperse? You know, this isn't, this isn't the way we act. And finally, you know, with her pleading, they go back to town they create an effigy of Abraham and they hang him from an elm tree and they break out the windows in the inn, just generally behave very, very badly. And then it's getting cold and dark and they've run out of food. So they go home.
2: Right. Yeah. That's a really sad story, right? Uh, Clarissa ends up passing away the following week.
1: Yeah, she dies anyway. And so does her little toddler daughter within another couple of weeks after that. And only the baby survives. And um, (laughs) there's another whole backstory with that that I found out later, but I should leave something for somebody who might want to read the book to find out.
2: Back again momentarily. And back to the interview.
1: So the governor's council deliberates over kind of like the rest of December and the, the gist of their deliberation is, well, two juries found him guilty. And Sally, you know, he, he really did kill her. There's there's Nobody has ever questioned whether or not he was the perpetrator. And who are they to say that the juries were wrong? So ultimately, the council decides to recommend to the governor that he be executed. And the governor isn't going to argue with them. So he says, fine. And in very early January, in the middle of a snowstorm, the 10,000 people roll back into Hopkinton, and they watch Abraham be hanged. But it's not really the end of the story, because the the whole thing sat very badly with the defense council. And it was what led the primary council, whose name was Peasley, to be instrumental in creating the first insane asylum in Concord. Conquered New Hampshire, the first asylum in New Hampshire, because he felt like if there had been one, that would have been an alternative to executing Abraham, that they they would have, you know, had something else that they could have done with him. So it it took him about three years of, of really, really working hard on it, but he did eventually get an asylum opened. So that was somewhat of a nice thing. I'm sure it turned into a terrible place, but initially it was probably a better place to put insane people than the various things that were being done with them at that time, which included things like having them roam the neighborhoods or locking them in cages in their homes or putting them in the town jails. I mean, it was just kind of like uh, the wild, wild West as far as what happened if you were insane.
2: Right. Did did their sleepwalking defense play a part in later trials, later cases?
1: Well, oddly enough, um, it did. I mean, within 10 years, there was a case in Boston where a young man who was very well-to-do murdered with a shaving razor his kind of she was sort of a prostitute girlfriend and it was another case that you know he claimed that he had been sleepwalking in it but it just like flew in the face of any kind of common sense there was absolutely no reason to believe that he was sleepwalking and uh so he went on trial and was represented by very fine legal minds and many of the same doctors that testified at at Abraham's trial testified there and possibly because he came from a vastly different socioeconomic background he was acquitted and that sleepwalking defense has like come down through the years and it, it doesn't come up often but it certainly has been used even very recently and with mixed results. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, there there's a fair amount of evidence that some people, when sleepwalking, can be violent. And it, it may be true that people have been, been murdered by sleepwalkers, but sometimes the defense is used in ways that don't really ring true. And then it's likely to fail. But it's also influenced the use of insanity as a defense. That was really just the very beginning Abraham's trial was. It had been used a few times in England, and it would certainly be used over and over again in America, but it was a, a, a kind of an evolving idea. And it certainly led to New Hampshire developing um An insanity law that was a little bit different than other states, and I'd like to think that that had something to do with Abraham's trial. I mean, certainly there are people that commit crimes while insane that cannot be held responsible, but I think it's a very uneasy thing for our society to deal with, and and it, and also the concept of very young people committing really serious crimes. I think that we have a a very uncertain relationship with that whole concept. And I think the the recent case of the the six year old shooting the teacher in Virginia is kind of a good example of, we don't know what to do sometimes. I mean, the questions that Abraham's trial raised have not been resolved. And it, it makes the story very modern and very pertinent because we're still scratching our heads over these things I think I went into this story believing that he knowingly committed the crime, but after I had kind of like lived with Abraham and Sally and Chauncey and their children for the length of time it took me to write the book, uh, my my attitude changed and I became more sympathetic to Abraham than I had been in the beginning. I, I think my take now is that He was a very strange boy, and I'm not completely convinced that he was fully responsible. A couple of days before he was executed, he was interviewed by a minister and a newspaper man. And the story that came out then may be the one that's closest to the truth, which is that Abraham was angry with Sally because she had chided him for spoiling his clothes on his nights off when he would go out and run around with other boys. And and of course, she had to hand sew all his clothes. So she had a real kind of vested interest in him not ruining them. And he didn't like that. And he got in his mind the idea that if he killed Sally and Chauncey, that he would inherit their farm. And I think that that idea that he thought that he could benefit from it, that he could get even with her and that he could benefit, sounds to me about like what his thinking might be like. You know, that I, I don't think, I think his IQ was very, very low. I think there really was something wrong with Abraham and that that would make sense to him. He'd heard of people inheriting farms and he was living there with them. So why wouldn't he inherit the farm? And I'm willing to believe that his idea was to kill her and then to lure Chauncey down to the field and kill Chauncey too. And it was only kind of like seeing her dead, you know, the, the full impact of that finally kind of made him think again.
2: And, and he, again, had originally invited Chauncey with them to pick strawberries.
1: Well, it's true, but th- it was the going up and I mean, Knowing that he made no effort to escape after he did it, that he went back up there you know, and started to wail, he clearly wanted Chauncey to come out and go get Sally. And yet he didn't really participate in helping him do that. Chauncey had to kind of drag him down the hill to find her. So it, it makes me think that Abraham was very conflicted about what he was thinking at that point. And maybe he was trying to lure him down there
2: his attorneys were really earnest in their defense of Prescott. But you kind of get the idea that they were just sort of throwing as much as they could against the wall, uh,
1: Mm -hmm. hoping something would stick. Anything that would stick to the wall was worth throwing. And, And it just, some of it made very little sense in terms of, it was kind of like scattershot sort of approach. But I think partly that may reflect that, it's, this is not a well-trodden path, this insanity defense, and, the, of course, the sleepwalking one. I don't. I think this must be the very first case where anyone had tried to use that as a defense.
2: What, one of the things that his lawyers brought up during his trial, uh, the, the Reverend Avery Sarah Cornell case, you, you've already talked about, the, the one that Chauncey had been reading about, um Mm -hmm. yes and and maybe prescott uh being vulnerable could it could have been influenced by
1: right at one point since they were arguing that insanity theoretically could come on in an instant and then something could happen and then it would just go away and the defense says uh well and you may be wondering, well, what caused it to come on in an instant? Well, it was the Avery trial. Clearly, Sally must have been discussing the Avery trial with, with uh, Abraham as they walked down the hill to pick the strawberries, which seems very doubtful to me. <laughs> partly because Abraham, as we know, is not exactly an ardent conversationalist, but partly because... That would be the impropriety of her discussing this case with him, with with poor Cornell pregnant and and her having sexual relations with this married minister. I mean, is she really going to talk to an 18-year-old boy about that? I mean, I don't think you'd do that now. So, yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) But it was a good theory.
2: Yeah. So Prescott during both trials s- seemed to be kind of uh, disconnected from, from what was going on. He was indifferent, uh, e- even when the, the guilty verdicts came in and he was told he would be put to death.
1: He just sat there, kind of, he never, my understanding from the little bit that was said, and what, what we have as a source, is that some of the psychiatrist folks they all sat there and listened to each other's testimony, which was kind of unusual. But that was their big opportunity to observe Abraham. They, they hadn't interviewed him or anything like that. They only saw him in the courtroom. That was their, the, the limit of their interaction with him. And they commented, one of them commented on how he was so seemingly oblivious to the trial. And we don't really know what Abraham's doing at that point. My guess is since he doesn't make eye contact, he's basically sitting there looking down at his knees or something. But even when the verdict was pronounced, supposedly all eyes in the courtroom turned to look at him to see what he would do, and he didn't do anything. And you have to wonder, does that mean he doesn't understand and, and that yeah. kind of circles back around to that that maybe that other little possible gem of truth when the, the men from Pembroke came to talk to him in the prison, and he said that he had thought to himself, well, you know, if Chauncey heard what he had done, he would put him in jail. He had him put in jail, and he didn't want to be in jail. That part sounds true to me. <laughs> I don't quite know how it fits into the context of everything, but it certainly um, makes me wonder if that wouldn't have been one reason why he wanted to kill Chauncey as well is that he would have thought, well, Chauncey knows what I have done and I'll just kill him. But he wouldn't think any further along in the process than that. He wouldn't, he wasn't able to like plan ahead. And I guess the FBI talks about different kinds of killers and they talk about a disorganized killer and, and Abraham fits their description to a T in that he doesn't plan his crime. He's not too smart. He abuses animals. Um, there's a long list of things like that. I think a lot of us have probably heard quite a few of the items on that list. And, and Chauncey seems to fit that. And and part of that whole disorganized killer is you don't plan going into it and you don't have like a plan for getting out of it. You know he doesn't. He the best he can come up with is he f- sat down on a tree stump and fell asleep. It worked before.
2: Yeah. And on an interesting note, Prescott actually did make a plan at the very end of his life, a plan with the executioner.
1: Yes, at the very end of his life, unfortunate Abraham had one more plan. Um, you you have to imagine this scene, it's snowing like the devil. They're in this big bowl-shaped area of land in Hopkinton that is a perfect place for a hanging. And Abraham is up there on the scaffold that they've just constructed. And he has a handkerchief. And he says to the man who's going to pull the lever that's going to cause the floor to drop out from underneath him, just that he'll drop the handkerchief when he's ready, and then the fellow should pull the lever. So somebody said that Abraham was shaking more from cold than fear, but I think it's very hard to know. I imagined he was afraid at that point. And finally, he drops the handkerchief, ready to go to whatever's coming next, and nothing happens. They either haven't paid attention to what he, his last wishes, or... Something. And finally, the fellow who's going to pull the lever picks up the handkerchief and gives it to him, gives it back, puts it in Abraham's hand, and they go through the whole thing a second time and then they drop him. So, I mean, the story is a tragedy from beginning to end. <laughs> One little a- after note to it is that a couple of years after the second trial, Chauncey travels back down to New Hampshire where he marries the daughter of one of the jurors and she goes up to to Corinth, Maine with him and they have a large family afterward. And that large family, one one of those children ended up in Saco and that was how the sampler came to Saco in the end. But it's just strange that his second wife is the daughter of one of the jurors. Seems strange to me anyway
2: does, yeah. So so speaking of that sampler, if people want to come to your museum, see the sampler, uh, buy your book, what's okay, the best way?
1: So my book was published by Kent State University Press. It's available from them. It's available on Amazon. It, it, the Sacco Museum is open all year round. Um, if you have a real interest in seeing the sampler – I'd be happy to provide my email address at work and I'd be happy to send you a picture of the sampler. It's, it's a lovely thing. <laughs> and God knows it evokes a story.
2: Yeah. Yep. I'll put it in the show notes. Yep.
1: Okay. That's fine. And, and I would love to show anybody who's interested a picture of the sampler or you're welcome to visit and I'll let you hold that sampler in your hands and take a good look at it.
2: Well, uh, thank, thank you so much for taking the time to share Sally's story and walking us through the case.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me to do it. It was it was a real pleasure.
2: Again, I have been speaking to Leslie Rounds. Her book is called I Have Struck Mrs. Cochrane with a Stake: Sleepwalking, Insanity, and the Trial of Abraham Prescott. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.